Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Brady K. Skaggs, Jr. He's a water quality program director, part of the Train Conservancy, and we're going to talk about uh, their work and his work. So, Brady, thank you for coming. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your background and then uh, what's the Train Conservancy? What does it do? Sure. So my background a little bit is grew up swimming, so I've always had a fascination with water. Went and did my undergrad at Georgia Tech in microbiology, swam at Georgia Tech, and then I made my way to New Orleans three days before Hurricane Katrina for a, an advanced degree that was related to water. Studied up until graduated 2013 from the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, and have been kind of working in the water space ever since. Uh, the Pontchartrain Conservancy is an organization that believes in sustained benefit of our area and our community, and we work to make waterways better and cleaner for folks that live in and around the most populous area within Louisiana. So what are some of the uh, the projects and the goals? You have your overriding mission, but um, what does the day-to-day look like? What projects do you work on? Yep. So I'm the Water Quality Program Director here at the Conservancy, and we have two big projects or two different types of projects that are related to recreational water quality monitoring. So we have a weekly monitoring event where we sample 12 different sites in and around the lake. And then we have programs that are related to on-site wastewater treatment systems. Those on-site wastewater treatment systems, we go out and we inspect them and see if they're functioning. We work with homeowners to make sure that they're functioning. And then we look to improve waterways and a watershed basis as a result of that work by reflecting improvements in different ambient data. So our those are our two largest ones. And then we also have smaller projects that we're working on from time to time, one of which is our microplastics program. Yeah, if you don't mind, can we zoom in on the microplastics? When did you start seeing them and you know where are they in the in the area and you know what, what kind of problems do they cause? Let's talk about that. Sure. So we have a project that is a community science-based project kicked off just before the pandemic broke out. We were hoping for a community or participant science-based program where we would have basically crowdsourcing data of different microplastics in and around different waterways and of interest to folks. We always have folks that are interested in participating in different water quality monitoring efforts. We have pretty stringent requirements on our programs as far as quality assurance and making sure the data we report is reflective of the data that's collected and true to the environmental conditions. So our community science program is a little overlapped with getting folks engaged and making sure that Participants or people that are interested have a way of going out and collecting data too. And it all kind of came about through a a variety of things, one of which was the appearance of an algal bloom. 
and the reduction in salinity across the basin with the opening of the Bonnie Carey spillway in the early 2019. But we've also seen an uptick in the amount of plastics that are in and around our different waterways. So we have a program or our microplastics program is part of a, a larger program where folks can go out and collect water samples and analyze them at our laboratory for three conservative parameters, salinity, a total chlorophyll, and then four different types of microplastics. What about community programs to go and take the visible stuff out of the water? Is that a different program or do you guys do that? We do that and we have a variety of things. We have storm sweep that's going on right now that is focused on the removal of large pieces of litter or debris in and around storm drains or waterways. But this is a different program that's in our water quality group. So just a slightly different focus. Well, the thing, I don't know if this is a, a valid conclusion, but you know, the more you get the big stuff out of the water source, the less there is to break down to turn into plastics and microplastics and nanoplastics later on. Or is that a mistaken assumption? Taking out the big stuff, will it not really help the microplastic inlets? Well, I think the data is too young to really draw that conclusion right now, at least in, in the work that we're doing. But there is also the other, I guess, another thought to think of as well. And that is we are using more synthetic fibers or using more and more synthetic fibers as our clothing or towels or, or bed sheets. And when those materials get washed, they ultimately are, are discharged to some kind of sanitary sewer treatment. And our sanitary systems are not designed to remove fibrous uh, plastic materials. And sometimes those can be discharged with the effluent. So, you know, I know we typically think of that pathway of having coarse litter that is released into the environment and it breaks down but there are other ways that we can introduce microplastics into the environment as well. Well, uh, can you tell if microplastics are directly coming into the Pondshire Train Conservancy or are they being created there by the existing plastics that are hanging out? So we don't have that ability to discern within the data sets you know, where it's sourced from. Right now, we're just enumerating and, and trying to quantify the different types of plastics. So is it a fiber or a film, a small pellet? but we don't have necessarily the means to tease out where that's ultimately sourced from because it's just not the level of depth of the program. Is there I any way could... to tell, um, yeah, I mean, is there any way to tell generically like, oh, you know, it looks like 80 or 90% of the stuff coming in is already coming in as microplastics or is there any way to just gauge, I don't know, just on a macro level, the percentage that is generated there versus what comes in? Yeah, I think there is a way that is coming and it'll be explored in the future. I have heard a presentation, a researcher out of Louisiana State University, that there is a certain type of pollutant profile that could be associated with these different plastics. And that pollutant profile is the result of having largely hydrophobic types of pollutants. So pollutants that don't like water, and they tend to associate with plastics, which are also nonpolar in nature. So by quantifying and looking at the types of pollutants that can be associated with some of these microplastics, I certainly believe that one day we'll be able to, you know, to kind of characterize and source where they've come from. And that really is a fascinating concept to think about. But for us, we're not degree of sophistication in the laboratory. We're just counting them underneath the microscope. Are you able to see if there's any um, 
any way to identify where particular plastics came from or what, like when you see them in their microplastic, is there enough of the branding on any of them to tell you it's a, a plastic Coke bottle or is it, you can't tell at all? Like, can you tell their origin? You know, how many different types of plastics do you think you're getting in the microplastic form? So there's four different types of microplastics that we're looking for, and they're all really, really small. By definition, we're, we're quantifying pieces that are less than five millimeters in size, so tiny, and it, they don't have any branding on them as far as being able to point to a specific soda kind of container. What is interesting, though, is that a lot of our sample results are quantifying different fibers. So microfibers or, or plastic types of fibers, we, we're not seeing too much in the way of the pellets. And that could just be the way that we are collecting the water samples. We're, we're going out and collecting the water samples about a foot below the surface of the water body or asking our participants to. And so you don't expect things to float, to be present within that, that type of sample collection profile. So these could be things that are coming out of washing machines going to the sewer treatment system, and then ultimately to the environment, because those will be a little bit more mobile within the water column. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Why wouldn't you take some surface water and look for stuff there and Try to see if there's a difference between things that float and things that hang out in the water column like this. Yep. So that's a good question from the standpoint that, you know, usually when we go out and we sample, we always rely on a book called Standard Methods for the Examination of Water and Wastewater. That book has a lot of peer-reviewed, time-tested gold standards in it that help with the determination of specific pollutants or parameters. So if we want to go out and measure dissolved oxygen or chromium, we can do that in a way that's been kind of validated over time. Microplastics is a very new contaminant. And because it's so new, we don't have a protocol within that book that would be quick and easy to point to. So many different programs have a variety of measurement methods. When we were designing this particular experiment, we wanted to do something that was quick and easy for participants, something that the participants didn't have to rely on the use of, of strong chemicals that would, that would digest organic matter. So it's relatively simple in that way, but your end results would be biased by where you are sampling. Some researchers have protocols that go out and look at a given space of tidally influenced shoreline and they're collecting samples along that shoreline or collecting at different depths and strata of the water column itself. Ours is just a, a much simpler design, and that is certainly going to influence the data. So do you know how long it takes for a plastic to turn into a microplastic? Has anyone been able to model that? I'm sure people have done it, yes. I don't know. So no one that you know of has been able to model how long it takes, let's 
you know, again, a plastic soda bottle to turn into microplastics, or I guess if it comes from laundry, it's instantaneous. Is there any way to tell how old a particular microplastic piece is or how long its journey has been to turn into what it is? I think there are people researching that the topic of study. We are not. Has there been any, uh, I don't know, have you set up any, so I guess you're not doing any modeling. Uh, yeah. I guess you wouldn't, they wouldn't be plastics that you'd recognize that have been hanging out there for a long time that they are now degrading. But uh, hmm. is there any estimate on, on how long it takes, you know, a plastic to turn into a microplastic or it could be anything? No one knows at all. I mean, it's dependent upon the type of plastic that it's ultimately derived from, but I, you know, I don't have any figures handy for you. And then what about the the mixture of the microplastics you find? Can you tell that, oh, this one was from, uh, you know, plastic number five, or this one came probably from laundry or, you know, the provenance of them, can you tell? There is is likely a way that it's possible to to determine that. Again, because we're asking folks to go out and then do their their own analysis under the microscope, that type of analysis is really only going to capture the number of microplastics that are within a given filtered sample. And it's counting, but there is, because it's a person that is counting it, there is room for some level of error, right? A, A researcher or a participant can look at that material and incorrectly state that it is a microplastic when it may in fact be something that is organic in nature. So one of the you know, other ways to go about and do this is that you would filter out a sample and then digest it with a strong peroxide or other chemical that can break down the organics. And then you're only left with plastics. And then you can quantify the amount of mass on that by weighing it out. And that is a, you know, an, another great idea to go about doing it. But just kind of based on the fact that we have people that are actively soliciting and you know, are, are more from a community focus level of engagement and are not professional uh, laboratory technicians, we don't rely on that and certainly don't want to expose our participants to that. So it all fundamentally comes down to the way a program is designed that you can make certain inferences from the, the results and the data from that. Our program, just by its nature, is not designed to try to capture that information, but it's possible to do so. Well, what if you had a question and you said, Hey, just anecdotally, tell us what you noticed about plastics that you found and looked at. You know, what jumps out at you? And you might get some really interesting information that way from people. Certainly. Uh, so one of the things that that has very much jumped out at us is, is the predominant nature of fibers that are within the samples that we're collecting. Uh, and, and again, I think just based on the characteristics of these different things, um, you know, a film may float more, a pellet or a nurdle may float more. It may be tidally influenced and kind of um, wash up on the shoreline or, or just under the influence of where the water interfaces with the shoreline. Uh, what we observe is that there's lots of fibers within our, our samples that have been recorded. And because of that, it may just be reflecting that in a water column, you're going to see more fibers than, than anything else. And I think that's pretty fascinating that you could see that. Well, where are the fibers come from? Can they come from any plastic or is it only certain kinds that would make fibers? Yeah, so there's two different types of plastics that it could possibly come from. Again, just because we're enumerating them and we're not doing any further chemical analysis, we can't point exclusively to one source or the other. But there's, there's logically two different pathways. You could have some marine 
debris or trash that is the result of netting or ropes. And those materials can break down within the environment after they've been discarded or abandoned in some way into smaller and smaller strands of, of fibrous material. And then you can also have towels or clothing that is largely a synthetic-based material that goes through a sewage treatment process after it's gone through the laundry or showers. And then that material gets discharged into the environment. Our sanitary sewer facilities are not designed to remove those per se. So what do you hope to learn from the analysis of the microplastics you guys are doing or having the community do? Well, so our biggest questions are, you know, how can we can we get folks engaged? How easy is it to, to measure and to record some of this information? And what is the usability of this data really for expanding more on community science programs in and around the area? But it's also to try to capture what kinds of plastics we could encounter in the environment and ultimately make recommendations or look to work cooperatively with the LDEQ, for instance, and see what needs to be monitored in the future. Yeah, I guess you'll change the parameters as you learn more. But what do you think will be some of the useful learnings that you want to find? Maybe I'll take three or four iterations, different projects, but how do you think that this is going to help the conservancy? Well, I think this will help the conservancy in us capturing data and understanding our participants, the usability and reliability of some of these things, the consistency of data trying to understand if what we are capturing and having recorded is reflective of that. So we certainly have questions in and around participant data, but if we're able to learn, you know, what types of plastics may be found in in specific types of scenarios, then it's something that we can look forward to in the future and try to capture more data. This is the first type of project that we've done with microplastics. So I think to your point, it's going to take several iterations to really be able to drill down and capture some some meaningful information. Do you have any um, like localized GPS data associated with where the sample was taken from? Because maybe, you know, I know it's a body of water, things mix and move, but perhaps you can create a, um, a geospatial map of what is found where, at least in an early stage, and maybe that would give you some idea of, hmm, okay, the currents or the tidal action or whatever it may be is it's preferentially taking fibers over here to this part, and it's taking these other things over to that part. So that's precisely what we're looking to do at the conclusion of the project, is that we have asked our participants to go out and collect samples. And as a portion of that sample collection, we've, we've allowed them the flexibility to go out and sample wherever they find of interest. But those geo-coordinates are, are supposed to correlate with what they found in their samples. So we will be able to plot on a map, you know, and kind of display the, the distribution of both sample collection and materials found at each location. How many different um, inlet points are there for the, you know, for the plastics that get into the conservancy? Is like infinite ones or are there a few channels that everything probably goes through? Is your question based on the geography of the area or just the different types of contributions? Yeah, I get what you're thinking. So yeah, from a geographical standpoint, yes, what's the answer to that? And then from a source pollution point, that's probably got a lot harder to ascertain. But, you know, again, at least geographically or, you know, however way you could figure it, how does stuff get in there? Well, let me try it this way. So on the South Shore, what we call the South Shore of Lake Pontchartrain, that's where you have two of the largest parishes in the state, Jefferson Parish and Orleans Parish. It's fairly dense, a dense development. 
everything is drained by pumps that go, you know, essentially you're pumping water out and over a levee system into Lake Pontchartrain. The majority or the vast majority of all the development, at least on the east bank of the South Shore, goes to two principal wastewater treatment facilities. You have the Surgeon Water Board's facility off of Florida Avenue. And then in Jefferson Parish, there is a wastewater treatment facility just off Clearview. And both of those facilities drain to the Mississippi River. So everything that's pumped into Lake Pontchartrain would be from a stormwater conveyance or a stormwater event. The North Shore is pretty radically different. There's a, a, a wide variety of different tributaries that drain naturally into Lake Pontchartrain. But at least from a wastewater standpoint, predominantly you have on-site wastewater treatment systems that discharge to a stormwater conveyance ditch at the front of the house. So in, for instance, in St. Tammany Parish, which is on the North Shore, two-thirds of all homes have an on-site wastewater treatment system that utilizes a, a discharge to the stormwater ditch for treatment of the sanitary waste. So everything that you know could be coming out of a sewage treatment facility, you know, you have two-thirds probability that it could be at an on-site wastewater treatment system. So it's, you know, the geography is extremely diverse. The different types of treatment strategy are very diverse uh, between both the, the North Shore and South Shore. So when you're talking about, for instance, like washing a synthetic material in a laundry machine and then having that discharge go to the environment, that's highly possible on the south on the North Shore. But you know, in both locations, there are certainly coarse litter that is being released to the environment and ultimately make its way to Lake Pontchartrain and thence to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, what do you think is happening to the microplastics that are in the conservancy area? Are they affecting a lot of the wildlife negatively? Is that showing up where you have you know birds or fish with you know they're riddled with plastics? Or you know what are you guys seeing as the uh, effects of all this? I think it's been fairly well discussed within a lot of publications that these coarse materials are making their way into turtles and fish and on up the, the food web that you can you can find some of these litter items or plastic in the stomachs of, of different specimens. That's very much a concern. I mean, the Gulf and, and our local environment, as far as fishing, is a great source of sustenance for the for the population. So it, it's certainly a concern. Well, how can people uh, find out more about the work you guys are doing and perhaps if they live in the area, even volunteer to do some of the sampling? We have a, a great website that's always seeing improvements, scienceforourcoast.org. We also have an application that we push data out on. So folks can also get that information by downloading the app Lake and Coast on either iOS or Android uh, platforms. And um, we would certainly welcome anybody that's interested in helping to, to join us. Very good. Brady, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and explaining this. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time, Rich. Thank you for inviting me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.